This is the GGC Life Podcast. Today we're going to jump straight into the Word. I have a big question that I want to tackle, that I want to look into. The question is this. Are you ready for it? Is tithing for today? Everybody say, ooh. <laughs> Here we go. Are you ready? There's, there's, there's plenty of arguments out there for whether or not we're required to tithe, as the Israelites did in Old Testament Scripture. Um, so we're going to tackle this thing front on. Um, and just to quickly bring everybody up to speed, what is tithing? Uh, tithing is a practice that we see people practice uh, through Scripture where they would take 10% of what they had and give it either to the Lord or to someone in worship to the Lord. And so we see it all through Scripture. And so it's, it's a, it's, there's a regular occurrence. We're going to unpack it. We're going to look at it. Um, but before we jump into that, I'm going to start by throwing my stingy two-year-old son under the bus with this story. Uh, Vanessa and I went to a cafe yesterday, maybe, or the day before, sometime this weekend. And um, we sat down. It was busy. It was super busy, chaos, and um, the place was packed. And so, anyway, we sat down, and our table was dressed for two people. But there was three of us. There was Vanessa, Elias, and me. Uh, Vanessa, Elias, and I. And so we're sitting at the table, and there's, there's one set of cutlery, and there's another set of cutlery, and Elias has no set of cutlery before him. And so you could see he's starting to, like, he's looking around for his fork. And so he reaches out, and he grabs my fork, and he snatches it to him, and he says, my fork. And I said, what about Dada? What, 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 what am I going to have? And he says, my fork, my fork. And then I said, I'm not going to be able to eat anything. And, he, and he's, he's just like, he was so persistent. He's like, no, this is my my fork. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I've just painted a picture of the human condition. Uh, we, we live in this pandemic of the world kind of exists in this pandemic of fear over faith, fear of not enough, fear of, uh, of lack and fear of running out. And um, you think about when, you know, when COVID was running rampant and you, do you remember the toilet paper situation or have we just all buried that? <laughs> remember you'd go down, you'd go to Woolies or Coles or, you know, for some of you guys, IGA, uh, the Inner West, um, and you just, no toilet paper. I don't know what happened when we ran out of toilet paper. What were people using? That's my question. Some of you, I'm not sure if any of you ran out of toilet paper, but anyway, good times. But I, w- I want to paint a picture. So... You know when you go, you go to someone's place for dinner, and you go, you go somewhere, and they're, they're a great host. We actually, we had some, uh, we had, we actually got to hang out with Dikesh and Asmita this week. If you've never had Nepalese food, you got to get into Nepalese food. It's incredible. It's a mix between, uh, it's incredible. Anyway, um, but they just, they prepared so much food, like way too much food. And you know when you go over to someone's house and they're like a really good host, they over-prepare. They've got, they've got more than enough all the time. It's the same with like me and my family. We head over to mum and dad's house. It's just always way too much food cooked. And we're just thinking, of all, it's just feels crazy. Um, but in a similar way, God created this world and he's the great dinner host. And he created this world with more than enough. And he invites everyone to the table. And you think about it. You think about how Adam and Eve were placed in a garden with more than enough. The Garden of Eden represented God's original design for humanity to remain completely and totally reliant and dependent on him. Everybody say dependent. 
It's actually God's desire that he would remain father and we would remain sons and daughters. And so there's this, we see this as, as, as the Genesis story unfolds, we see this beautiful display of God's hospitality, God's provision, God's faithfulness that he never lets us down. And then there's a moment of temptation where we hear a voice from an unfamiliar spirit that begins to convince us that maybe what we have isn't enough. And so we see Eve reach out to this tree and grab this fruit. She takes it for herself. And in that moment, she began uh, what still happens today, this, this where humans provide for themselves and they, they want what God can give them apart from God. And when what we do is we step into a place of independence and we want to do our life apart from God and we begin to provide for ourselves. And when we steal from things and when we take from things, we've, we actually, we, we descend into what we now see in the world where we are, we are seeing a world that is filled with lack and so everyone is concerned about not having enough and everyone's thinking, what can I take? What can I, what can I pursue to provide for myself? Because I'm not quite sure that what God's going to provide for me will be enough. Enter Jesus. Radically different way of thinking. And he says, he reminds us of this picture that we see in the Garden of Eden. Um, in, it's actually in uh, Matthew, I'll just throw out a couple of the verses, but Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34. It's where that song Jaira comes from, you know. Um, what's, the, what's the lyric? If he dresses the lilies, that one, with beauty and splendor. If, if, he, if he watches over the sparrow, if he dresses the lilies, how much more is he going to look after you? It's a, and, and the scripture actually says, do not worry about your life. Turn to your neighbor and say, do not worry. Don't worry. Now sing to them, don't worry. That's good. Very good. <laughs> there we go. Some ministry happening this morning. Um, okay, so Jesus is actually calling us back into this place where we do not worry, where the Father becomes Father again, where the Father becomes provider, supplier of every need. That's actually where he calls us back. He's actually calling us back into this place. And it's even said, like it's prophesied of Jesus, and Jesus brings it up, that the Son of Man would have no place to lay his head. Foxes have dens, rabbits have holes. I think that's the scripture. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And it's this idea that Jesus knew that, even if it felt like in a season that there was nothing in his hands, he still had everything because his father had everything. And so we're asking the question, is tithing for today? And as we explore this idea, I want to keep this one thing front and center. And it's the title of the message as well. We are expected to trust the Lord. The key here, and I think this is what we, when we deviate from this, we miss a whole bunch and we start to, we wrestle with the wrong things and we miss the, we, we miss out on what God's trying to do. But uh, we are expected to trust the Lord in all things. And so catch yourself when you ask the question, if tithing is for today, catch yourself and, and question yourself and see if it comes from a place of concern for if you will have enough to provide for yourself. Okay. 
But the answer also might surprise you about his tithing for today. So let's look at this. There's a lot to cover this morning. I've broken it up into like three milestones I kind of want to cover. And so just to give you an overview so you don't get lost, this is what we're covering today. Milestone number one is we're going to look at giving through the ages. So before all the covenants were set in place, what did giving look like when it was given to the Lord? You know, maybe there's an example of tithing here and fruit, first fruits. Then through the covenants, like when God started to ordain it in his law. And then the second milestone is a gospel-inspired generosity. We're going to look at the impact that Christ had on generosity um, in, in the Bible. And then uh, we'll finish off on this like third milestone of, um, for guides for giving in the church today. Cool? You with me? Okay, let's look at milestone number one, giving through the ages. Okay, I want to I start with the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, um, you may know this story. Actually, what I'm going to do is going to read a couple of the verses from this story. In Genesis chapter 4, uh, verse 1, this story begins. And what we're going to see is we're going to actually, we're going to see a contrast uh, arise between these two brothers, Cain and Abel, um, in what they give and what they present to the Lord and how it reveals the condition of their hearts. And that's a key thing here, the condition of your heart. And so uh, verse 1, about midway through verse 1, it says, okay, so, no, so Adam made love to his wife Eve. They became uh, pregnant, gave birth to Cain. Later on it says, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Okay, check this out. In the course of time, that's key, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering. The fat portions, who loves the fat portions of the meat? The fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now the Lord looked with favor on Abel, the one that brought the fat portions, and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Okay, this makes no sense. Why is God upset with Cain? They're both offering something. They're both bringing something to the Lord. There's, there's no absence of offering here. They're both bringing something. We, we, it, it can be confusing when we read it at first, but when you know the type of God we serve, it starts to become clear. The Bible says that uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And there's a condition. There's a difference of condition between these two brothers, the conditions of their heart. And the, where it says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil, it reveals to us that Cain brought what he could spare. Cain brought what he could spare. Where Abel brought the, the fat portions, so the most flavorful portions of the meat, of the firstborn of the flock. He brought, this is the first example we have of someone bringing first fruits. Everybody say first fruits. Okay, so uh, one of the concepts of, of tithing is to give 10% of your, of the, it's like you're giving the first fruits. You're giving what comes first. And so this isn't exactly a tithe because it's not a prescribed amount, but it's an example of giving first fruits. Now, first fruits doesn't always translate well to today's uh, era because 
back then, you think about like, I mean, any horticulture enthusiasts in the room, if you, you know, you get a lovely flowering chili plant, imagine plucking all those chilies, handing them off to a friend, and then not being sure how good the next batch of chilies are going to be. That's what it looks like to hand off your first fruits. Or another example is when one of your, you know, your livestock gives birth to an animal, you're, you've just seen, okay, this animal, this animal's good. I can, I can either eat this animal, milk this animal, you know, use this animal, put this animal to good use. But there's no guarantee uh, for what's coming next. And so there's an element of trust that's demonstrated when you give God your first fruits. Giving your first fruits uh, reveals the condition of your heart, that you can trust Him with your first fruits. So, so, you know, we live in a world where income is somewhat guaranteed, and so it becomes easy to calculate what you can give God. And I want to warn you against calculating what you can give God. We're going to d- dive a little deeper into that in a moment, but uh, the Lord jealously desires your trust, and He desires your best. He desires your first uh, when Vanessa and I, well, I've probably shared this story with some of you before, but when Vanessa and I were dating, Vanessa's like a hopeless romantic, and I had to learn to become a hopeless romantic. Um, Vanessa, like in our first year of dating, she collected all these like letters that we had wrote and receipts and photos and, and just like little records of our dating life. And she put them into a scrapbook to give me as a gift on our first year dating anniversary. And so she gave it to me. And I'm like, wow, this is really nice. <laughs> and then she's like, so what did you get me? <laughs> I didn't get anything. <laughs> so I was so terrible. I felt so bad. Um, but she's so, she's so incredible. And, um, and she's celebra- you know, celebrating my birthday much better than I was celebrating her birthday and all this sort of stuff. And, but we come to this point where it's like, man, she's been so lovely, so beautiful that it's like, it's in my heart and my desire to give her my best, not my leftovers, not... Not my scraps. Um, if I only gave my, you know, my leftovers, like if I went to give my best, if I stopped showering, brushing my teeth, stopped flushing the toilet, what does that say about what I think she deserves, right? And so it's, it's this, we're talking about tithe, but what I want to address more than anything is actually the condition of our hearts. God wants to see that our, the condition of our heart is, it's, it's, it's a condition, it's like we love him. And we delight to give to him. We cheerfully give to him. And so we see this, this contrast between Cain and Abel. Okay, reveal the condition of the heart. God wants us to have a heart that trusts him, that loves him. And then we've got this second example. This is also pre-covenant, pre-any laws, right, um, that we see in the Bible. Another example of the condition of someone's heart. We're going to look at Abram in Genesis chapter 14, uh, verse 17. So the context here is Abram, also known as Abraham. If if I say Abraham, you know who I'm talking about. Abraham, Abram. Abram, um, he was was setting out to go save his nephew Lot. So his nephew Lot was uh, living in Sodom and Gomorrah for a time, and then I think he came out and I think he got captured. So Abram was going to go rescue him. And so he sets out to rescue him, and he wins. He wins this battle, and he rescues Lot. And it's an incredible story. 
Um, but then in verse 17, we see this, this cool like unfolding of generosity. And so in verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Kedolamah and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva. Um, now, what's really interesting about this word Sheva is that it actually means compromise, the valley of compromise. Um, Abraham or Abram, we see in just a moment, actually had an opportunity to compromise here, but he chose to trust the same God who had just made a way to continue to make a way. Rather than taking from the fruit of the tree to provide for, him, for himself, he would trust that God would provide for him. And so in verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, uh, brought out bread and wine. And now we know that Melchizedek, this is a big story here, but Melchizedek actually represents Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, King of Salem, the Prince of Peace, it talks about him that he had no beginning or end. Um, He brings out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands. And um, this just like as I'm reading this, I just felt the Spirit reminding me of Psalm 23, uh, verse 4 to 6. So you just picture this. Abram's there. The king of Sodom and Gomorrah has just walked up. And while the king of Sodom, or sorry, not Gomorrah, but the king of just Sodom, he comes up. The king of Salem, representing Christ, comes in and begins to bless Abram in front of the king of Sodom. And and it reminds me of... in in. Psalm 23, verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, maybe even the valley, the temptation of compromise, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You've provided for me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. King Melchizedek is is preparing the wine and and the bread, representing, you know, communion. And so he presents it in front of the king of Sodom. And, he, and he's essentially, uh, God is boasting in front of uh, the enemy and showing off in front of the enemy. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. That's the blessing of King Melchizedek. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think uh, David here is prophesying about what happened to Abraham and also what the Lord would continue to do for anyone that yields themselves completely to the Lord because here's what comes next. There's a temptation. So firstly, in, in the second half of verse 20, it says, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. It wasn't asked to. There was no law for this. But Abraham gave willingly and cheerfully in response to the goodness of God that Lot was successfully rescued, that Abraham was blessed. It wasn't a law. It was a gift of honor and worship, giving in response to the goodness of God. Then in verse 21, it says, The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now, this might sound familiar to you. Just like the fruit that was offered in the garden or how Jesus was tested in the wilderness, the enemy is consistently doing what he can to convince us to seek provision from a source other than our Father. Whether it's we provide for ourselves, the world provides for us, someone else provides, we're working in our own strength to provide for ourselves. And so Sodom tempts uh, Abram, the king of Sodom tempts Abram, and he says, 
Give me the people and you can keep all the goods, all the riches. And Abraham, uh, or Abram, he actually denies this um, offer. He, he says to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing that belongs to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Come on. Somebody say, come on. <laughs> okay. Abraham wanted nothing from what the world or Sodom could provide and give to him. And, and it's this repeated motive of coming back to a place. Abraham could see that um, just as the father uh, dresses the lilies and the flowers of the field or feeds the sparrows of the air, he would be looked after. Abram was demonstrating how he could trust the Lord. He trusted the Lord. So what do you give a king who has everything? You, just, you give him a gift of honor. This king didn't need it. Um, it doesn't really make him richer, but it reveals our heart and our heart posture. It presents a posture um, that when we give out of response, it reveals the condition of our heart that we trust the Lord as provider. That we, we're not looking for what we can get because there's an unlimited resource. And we know that in a world where we're all giving, there's more than enough. And in just a moment, we're going to see in the early church, there was more than enough at all times. It's incredible. And so um, we're going to skip through a little bit, but I want to just quick overview of, okay, this is, this is before all the laws were put in place. Uh, then Moses comes along and God sets up a, new, a, a, a mosaic covenant with his people and sets in place laws to help keep the people holy. Now, holy, holy literally means set apart. So Adam and Eve were the first people to take from the tree and provide from themselves. And so that we, were, we were flung into devastation. And then you have God choose. He's like, okay, we're going to start with Abram. And he chooses Abram and says, I'm going to show my goodness and my prosperity through you to all the world. And so I'm going to choose you. And if you abide by my ways, you're going to see the hand of the Lord on your life. And so he, begins, he starts with Abraham, and then we see he develops all the way through, and we get to Moses. And by the time we get to Moses, the nation of Israel is so large um, that people continue to, you know, there are people that are forgetting, like the memorial stones we were talking about, forgetting what God had done and how good God is and how good God's ways are and how trustworthy he is. And so they begin to provide for themselves. One way they provide for themselves is they begin to sacrifice to other idols, they begin to worship other gods and they go and they marry into other communities and they're, they're, they're no longer believing that God is everything that they need. And they start partnering with other things. And so God sets in place laws to show and reveal because they didn't have Jesus. They didn't have the full mystery revealed. God puts in place laws to show the people uh, how they give them guidelines for how they can live a life that looks like they trust God. And they keep falling from them. So like God puts in place a tithe for the Levitical priesthood. So the Levites could do all the, uh, you know, the religious uh, ceremonial duties and they could pray, they could study the word. Um, there was a tithe for the feasts. And so they literally had a tithe. This is a second tithe. So, it's, so far we're at 20%. Um, there was a second tithe that they would take up to, to have parties all year. Literally, there was, a, there was a religious context to their parties, but it was actually like it was vacation and it was parties, kind of like a church camp or something like that in our context. And then thirdly, there was a tithe for the poor that was taken up every third year. And so if you do the calculations, they were kind of giving around 23% 
uh, withstanding all the extra offerings, free will offerings and other things. Um, few scholars believe it was all like the same tithe. They, they mostly believe they're all separate three tithes and different rates of how often they'd tithe. And so there was, this, there was this setup of how they would tithe in the old covenant because God is like, you got, guys, you have to be doing this at minimum. Otherwise, you're not being set apart. You're not demonstrating what it looks like to be connected to me. And in Malachi, we see that the people, again, forsake those laws and they start sacrificing to other idols. And so in Malachi, God instructs them that he says that you've robbed me. And so it's because they're robbing God of what belonged to him because God had instructed them to give to him. Okay. We just had Mother's Day, right? And so I, I don't even, I got Vanessa some tracksuits that she didn't really like. Um, but why, why did I say that? I just throw myself out of the bus. But we, okay, we have all these cool like holidays throughout the year, right? Like, Yay, capitalism. Opportunities to purchase people gifts and presents, right? Um, and so for in our scenario, in October, Vanessa and I, we, our anniversary, wedding anniversary is October. My birthday is November. Christmas is December. Vanessa's birthday is January. Um, Valentine's Day is February. That's five months of the year. <laughs> and so I get from March till what comes before October, September? I get a break from gifts. Um, Elias's birthday is in March, so we've got to do something there. But we've pretty much got a little bit of a break. Now, it means so much. It, it's, it doesn't mean a lot. I mean, it's, it's nice. It's a beautiful gesture. Vanessa feels celebrated when I give her something, when I go to something, when I put something on during one of these festive holidays. But Vanessa is so much more blessed when I do something that is completely out of rhythm and out of expectation when I surprise her with something. I'm not saying I do that very often, but I'm saying a cheerful giver emanates love, compelled by love alone, not a law or a mandate, not a holiday or an occasion. Uh, you know, it's like date nights. You know, for me, if I, if I don't compartmentalize um, a date night... <laughs> then sometimes the, the week can get away from me. But Vanessa isn't happy with me compartmentalizing her to a single evening or two evenings a week or a couple of you know, moments in the week. She wants all of me all the time. Any married people in the house get what I'm talking about. She wants all of me all the time. She's a jealous wife, jealous for my time and attention. I'm painting her as a desperate wife, but she's not desperate. She, just, she loves me. She wants my time. She wants me, um, the best of me, not the ends of me. And here's the thing, right? Um, tithe, I'm just going to put this out there. Your tithe can become like a date night. So it's good. It's good to tithe. We'll talk about that even further in a moment. Don't stop. I'm not asking you to stop. But if you've allowed your giving to the Lord to become stale and safe and conservative, measured rather than costly and moving as an act of worship, then there's a danger here. In letting a tithe, 10%, become a minimum because we're, maybe we're considering the law of an old covenant, it has actually become the maximum for many of us. When you put in place a minimum, and Jesus knows this, and that's why the new covenant is introduced, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But when a minimum is put in place, humanity loves to default to the minimum, right? Like if Vanessa asks me for a list of chores to get done while she's away from home, 
Um, I will get those lists of chores done and nothing else, and I'll be straight on the couch as soon as I can. Um, I'll, I'll spit through it as quick as I can. And, and that's the sort of, that's the issue with the law. The letter kills. The letter doesn't bear life. Uh, the, the, yeah, the law doesn't bear life. So Matthew 23, verse 23, we see Jesus um, challenging the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In their midst, there was like a dead and lifeless giving going on. The generosity of whitewashed tombs or perfumed corpses. Now, before we move on from this, um, people often use this scripture where Jesus mentions tithing in the New Testament to, to back the facts that, okay, maybe tithing is for today because Jesus mentions it. Um, my challenge to us in this is I, I just think that's a weak and inconsistent argument with what he's actually calling us to, uh, actually calling us to, which is something more radical, which we're going to get to. So many like, we're going to get to, we're going to get to. But Jesus is simply holding the Pharisees to the covenant they were currently under and supposed to uphold, yet continually fail to uphold. He's telling them, he's like, you know, good, yeah, you, you, you're tithing, awesome, but you've just missed, you've missed the whole point here. You've forgotten mercy and faithfulness and justice. Um, don't forget your former stuff. That's, that's the covenant you're under, uh, but you're forgetting a whole lot more. Okay, so... Let's let's build on this. We're about to jump into milestone two. Okay, we're good. We're good for time. Okay, we're about to jump into milestone two. But like I said, I want to take us back to that picture. God, the incredible dinner host, and 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 so He creates the garden. There's more than enough, but we we don't believe that there's more than enough. So we provide for ourselves, and we descend into the we we begin the um, cycle of poverty and not enough and, and thievery and jealousy and providing for me and my own. And then, and then so God has to restore us by demonstrating what it looks like to be looked after by the Father. And he, he calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to use you. And then it happens and it's working. But then the Israelites continue to fail, continue to forget who he is and the faithfulness of their God. They, they no longer trust the Lord. And so we just got generations of you know, stories uh, of, of disobedient or distrusting followers of, of, of God. And then Jesus comes along. And Jesus demonstrates a very generous life. Jesus is the one that says, consider the birds of the air. They don't sow um, or, or harvest, but they've got enough. And the lilies of the field, they're dressed. How much more will the Father dress you? You, you know, the Gentiles... Uh, seek after those things, and the Lord knows you need them, um, but he says, seek first the kingdom, and uh, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But Jesus, Jesus, in the midst of the devastation and the poverty, and he sees all the struggle, he says, consider the birds and the flowers, you should all live that way too. And it's like, yeah, surely Jesus knows that things don't always work out, right? Like, if I just, if I give everything away, there's, it's like, I'm going to run out. Like, surely I'm going to run out. Right, um, the scarcity problem we have today, it doesn't come from a lack of resource, but it actually comes from not trusting that God will look after us, and we begin to take the role of a provider into our own hands, which leads to us justifying 
the, the thing to look after ourselves and doing our own thing um, in a world where it seems like there's not enough. Anyway, so, but then we see like supernatural realities of the fact that when, you know, think about the story of the five loaves and two fish. There was actually five loaves and two fish. And there was actually 5,000 people there. And so there is a real element of supernatural provision, not just like, hey, there's a good principle here. If we all look after each other, there's going to be enough, kind of like what we see in the early church. But there's also a supernatural element to this that we tap into that God actually, in a literal sense, looks after us. We fall back into the Garden of Eden. We fall back into this place of allowing him to provide for us when we remove ourselves from the position of looking after ourselves. Jesus says things like sell your possessions, give to the poor, live a life of trust, trust in his abundance, right? But uh, living generously doesn't mean that things will, you know, go well. Like they go well because God's goodness follows us. But Jesus was betrayed by his friends. Jesus suffered and he was eventually crucified. He lost it all. But in losing it all, he gained it all. In losing it all, he gained it all. Jesus knew we were so deceived by the lie that there is not enough, but he was counting on that, that people would take advantage of his generosity and his generosity would be put on full display that Jesus was generous to the point of death, to the point that he had nothing left to give. And that's the gospel, that God gave himself completely without reservation so that he could die in your place for the, for the forgiveness of your sins, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so his generosity to the point of death was the ultimate expression of the amount, if you want an amount, of the amount of love and generosity uh, he had. He quantified how much he had to give. And so when you look at the fact that he gave it all, you can then you come to this place, this revelation that actually, if God gave everything, if everything has been given, if everything now belongs to us, then there is enough. I don't need to go looking for a fruit. I don't need to go looking to supply my needs. In God, there is enough. Everybody say, there is enough. I say it again. There is enough. There is enough. When you begin to believe there is enough, God's abundance is enough, you begin to see opportunities for generosity everywhere. And that brings us to milestone two. We're going to speed through this gospel-inspired generosity milestone. But uh, I think the gospel is the key to restoring radical generosity that we saw in Abel and that we saw in Abram. It was organic, real, true worship and generosity that they were displaying. And so there's three stories I want to look at. I want to look at the widow. Let's, let's check out the widow. The widow with two coins. She had two coins to give. Mark chapter 12, verse 41, if you're writing notes, we see the story of um, Jesus observing the people that came to give that day. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place. This is Mark 12, 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. Everybody say large. They weren't. They weren't. It wasn't like sparing. <laughs> there was large amounts. 
But a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Verse 43, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more, more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. I want to propose this possibility because this, this court, so in this court was the treasury and the treasury was comprised of 13 different chests for different types of tithes and offerings. I want to propose the fact that Jesus wasn't observing what we might label stingy rich people, but actually wealthy rich people that were bringing their tithes. People that were bringing what, by the law, was required of them. What blew Jesus away was that without instruction, this widow came along and didn't decide to give one of her two coins so she could provide for herself with the other coin. But that a widow came along and without any written law or without being prompted to do so, she chose to go all in. She's like, I'm all in. And she'd come to the place in her life where she realized, if I'm going to provide for myself, it's never going to be enough. And Jesus was blown away by this generosity. The point of the tithe was not just to finance the church or temple or ministers or festivals or whatever. Ultimately, it was to trust God, worshiping him with sacrifice that left us needing to trust him. Dad mentioned Isaac offered at the altar. You know, Abraham and Sarah are already too old to have other kids and there's no other option other than for God to come through. And so they've, they've gone all in and like, God, you need to come through. If I'm, I'm going to do this and it means I'm not going to survive unless you come through. And uh, there's many more examples. Let's move on to Mary, another beautiful example of new covenant giving, gospel-inspired generosity. Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, and it's th- this story, it seems to be the same story across the four gospels. Um, in three of the gospels, she's not named, but Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 7, and John 12, we see that uh, Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with a an alabaster jar of pure nard. Now, I think, I think it was this week or last week, Sal was opening up this story incredibly at our staff meeting, and he was sharing about how the context of why some of the disciples or in other, ver- other, other gospels, it says the Pharisees, were observing this act as a waste. It's because when they would use this nard, they'd never use pure nard. They would take a couple of drops and they put it in a basin so it wouldn't be wasted. So you could wash and then maybe you could reuse it. Some scholars say that um, you'd have like a catcher. So if you poured it over, you could catch the nard, you could reuse it. Now, this nard, it says of the nard that it was worth an entire year's wages. When we're talking an entire year, we're talking the wages of a working class man of that day. Mary was not a working class man. This was more probably and more likely her entire life savings. If not, some people speculate her dowry for being married at some point. And so she gave everything that she had. She expensively, lavishly wasted everything she had at the feet of Jesus. But nothing's wasted at the feet of Jesus, right? What she was doing in this moment was she was connecting herself 
to the true source, connected to the, the true vine. And, 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 it, and it's like the, the world around her was like, this is wasteful. Like there's a way to resource this more appropriately. But Mary came to a place in a revelation that there was, she needed nothing anymore. She had found, you know how Jesus says, I come to bring uh, water that will cause you to never thirst again. You know, I'm the bread of life. Like there's, there's all this, we, we miss out on a lot of these, these we, I mean, we overlook, sorry, a lot of these beautiful pictures where it, it's, it's all pointing to God the provider. God the provider. And so she, this also, you know, if it's Mary, one of the gospels plainly says it's Mary, she's giving after seeing her brother raised to life. And so she's sowing in response. And like, hear this, she's sowing in response, not just to reap, but she's sowing in response. Jesus, we got to get this. Jesus already gave everything. Freely we've received. Now we freely give. So sow in faith, believing that he feeds, he is the one who feeds the birds and dresses the flowers and he will remain your provider. I, I, I remember I was flicking through Instagram one day and someone was sharing this, this beautiful idea around songwriting and he was saying, you know, it's really cool when we write a song and it's sung all around the world and, you know, it's, just, it's, it's you know, you see different churches singing it and, and obviously it, it supports us financially to continue doing this work to, to write more songs. But it's equally beautiful when the song never makes it out of this room and it's wasted at the feet of Jesus. And we don't make a cent from it, and no one else ever hears this song. But it's wasted at the feet of Jesus. And when we think that way, it just, like I said, it opens up the doors of generosity. And then we think about the Church of Acts. This is the third example in this um, gospel-inspired generosity. Acts 4, verse 32. All the believers, everybody say all. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that, they were, that there were no needy persons among them. Just stop there for a moment. Like, What a testimony of the glory of God upon our house would it be that there'd be no needy people amongst us. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I think, I mean, you guys heard maybe a couple of weeks ago, Shared in absolute humility, but to create space for faith in our house for what God can do. Um, Mum and dad, Leo and Christine, sold their house in Melbourne and gave the entirety of the profits um, to the Heart for the House, this building fund. That amount on there, a big portion of that is because they've given into it. And I think what they've done is they've, they've broken something open in the spirit over this house. And so I think we're going to see something radical. And it's... It's, we're giving right now. So like in, in the old covenant and, and even in, we're about to look at it in the new covenant context, there's many examples of giving to different things. It's not all just to the poor and needy. It's not all just to the priests or the, or the ministers. It's not all just to festivals and it's not all just to, um, there's another category. We'll get to it in a moment. But there's, 
it's, it's not just a big part of this is actually that we give out of worship. And we, we give um, because it's a delight to give. But yeah, we'll check into that again. And then we got, we got Matthew 5. Yeah, this, this, the, the very next verse or two, I think it's the next chapter. Matthew, uh, sorry, Acts 5. Sorry. Acts 5 verse 1 talks about a time that um, someone else sold the house. But it was like, well, check this out. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept yourself some of the money you received for the land? Again, the temptation to provide for ourselves to put aside something so we can live off, so we can provide for ourselves. And so that was what, I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the normal human nature that Ananias is demonstrating, that we all probably demonstrate. Um, and then in verse 4 it says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? This house that this man sold, he was under zero compulsion to give it. There wasn't an amount that, there wasn't like, the church wasn't a club that required you to sell your house and give it to the church to become a part of the church. It belonged to you before it was sold. After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. It still belongs to you. Radical giving was a fruit of those who were saved, but how much they, they ought to have given was not a law. So how much, you know, it's a fruit of knowing how much you've been saved. It's a response. But how much they ought to have given was not a law. The only law of the new covenant, check this out, is the law of love, which gives birth to many things, including generous giving motivated by a revelation of trust. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. So, you know, Matthew 16, I'm, I'm chucking us through a bunch of scriptures. Please bear with me. I think I'm just, I'm going to go a little bit over time. I think we really need to catch this. And so I'm going to bring this to the end. I'm going to go the full, the full, the full length. Um, Matthew 16, you know, so we've just looked at the widow and Mary and the early church. Matthew 16, verse 24. This is talking in the context of going to the cross and Peter saying, you know, so Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's telling his disciples he's going to die. He's going to die on the cross. And Peter says, no. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like, why are you trying to protect me from this cross that I must bear? Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For here's the key, verse 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. You providing for yourself, as Eve took the fruit from the tree, is declaring independence from God, and it will be your ruin. This, this is like this is radical. The type of giving this, this leads us into is quite radical. The ultimate reward of generosity is not to receive an abundant return, but to be ultimately reliant on Him. That's the, that is the ultimate reward of generosity. Sure, there's, there's so many beautiful returns. Um, the reality is while we're here, 
Yes, with the same measure you sow, it'll be given back to you. But however, however, like the way he gives back to you, it will be for your benefit and it may very well surprise you. A hundredfold return on what you give may very well surprise you. And it may come back in, in, in a form of something that you would consider priceless, you know, like breakthrough in an area that you would, you'd pay whatever price you could for. Um, not quantifiable in any way. It's, it's a true expression of God's faithfulness. Anyway, I'm not saying God doesn't provide riches. I just believe that God, I do believe God will, will he doesn't only bless with monetary riches uh, and resources, um, but he does do that. He actually blesses, he blesses children with monetary uh, resources through whom he knows it can flow through. So if you've become the river that meets a dead end and it's stagnant, the Lord knows that in stagnant waters, things fester, diseases come about. And so he restricts the resource and it's for our benefit. Um, Okay, so milestone number three, let's land here. Milestone three, this is a quick one. Okay, so we're called to be radical givers. Well, what does it look like, okay? Like, is, is tithing for today? Well, here are some guides for giving in church today. What does it look like to give to the church today? Just a quick ex- um, explanation on the new covenant. So we've got all these laws and these covenants, and then Jesus comes and he presents to us a new covenant, the covenant of the Lamb. And the covenant of the Lamb invites us into a place where each and every one of us receives the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit reveals to us all truth. Now, the, the, it's like a high-risk, high-reward situation, right? Uh, the high risk is that, you know, well, what if people mess this up? You know, what about, like we need, we need some form of religion in place so we can give people an equation for how to give or how to serve or how to express their faith so we can be sure about the output, you know, what are we going to get to in the end? Um, but God knows that when you, you give each person the Spirit of God, and he has, he's re, there's like a, a communion that's restored between God and man, that the reward outweighs the risk. And that you see a people that grow up into the fullness of Christ, rather than being limited by the minimum, which then becomes our maximum in our human nature, we are we have been released to live in this new Christ covenant. And so Romans 7 uh, verse 4 and also 7 verse 6, it says, this is Paul writing to the Romans, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a way, a new way in the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Ephesians 2.15 says, Jesus set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. In the new covenant, in the new relationship we have with God through Christ, our primary way of relating with God is not by the law of old covenants, but by the spirit of God given to those who have given themselves to Him. Now, we're not set aside without any instructions or pattern. Christ, everybody say Christ. Christ is our pattern. He is the cornerstone. We build from Him. And so, you know, like Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. I say, do not hate. You've, said, you've heard it say, do not commit adultery. I say, do not lust. Now, 
That's the new covenant standard. New covenant scripture is free from the law, but invited to the law of love. So the question still stands. Is tithe for today? Is tithe for today? I'm going to say, you may not agree with me. Check this out. This is what I will say. This is my answer. This is a portion of my answer. There is no law of tithing in the new covenant. Just let that sit for a moment. There is no law of tithing new covenant. You're actually not required to give 10% of your income to something as a law in the new covenant. Now, firstly then, what I'll also say is it doesn't mean we can't celebrate the culture of tithing, giving a 10% portion of what we have freely, cheerfully, and generously to the Lord, um, first fruits, because it, it, it leads us into, it's a, it's a great pattern that leads us into a place where we trust Him, right? Um, we celebrate the culture, but do not, you know, don't be mistaken, there's actually a greater level of expectation. If Jesus says about, you know, you, don't, you say don't murder, I say don't hate, there's a great, greater level of expectation. The New Covenant Church was a generous church, what did the New Covenant Church's generosity look like? Okay, let me be clear. It wasn't, there wasn't, God doesn't desire exact amounts, but because, uh, you know, we love exact amounts. You know, man loves religion. Uh, but Paul, like, I mean, there's instructions. We're not going to get into all of this, are we? What time are we? 12 or 4. Okay. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. We see an example of Paul saying, Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, sounds familiar, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and try to collect it all at once. What's the context of this scripture? It's actually they were collecting money to give to the persecuted church in Jerusalem. And so they were generous. They all had all things in common. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, um, it's, uh, Paul's challenging the church of the Corinthians, uh, the, the church of Corinth, sorry, uh, challenging the generosity of the, the, you know, the church by comparing them to the Macedonians. And he's saying that the Macedonians both gave according to their means, maybe, maybe something similar to a tithe, and beyond their means. Paul had a conviction to make note of this. It shows that there is a high expectation of generosity we're called to live by. You can challenge someone's generosity by their fruits and by the, like where they're at. But there is, you can never put an, an amount on someone. If there's an amount to put on someone, this is what I'll say. And this is what I'll, I'll put on. Like, I mean, you know, the scriptures say, so sparingly you're going to reap sparingly. So there's not an exact amount, but generosity slash like, sparingly giving something seems to be a quantifiable amount. Like you can't say, you know, give sparingly, reap sparingly, give generously, unless there's a, how can you, you it's obviously able to be measured. Um, okay, so we should be generous. <laughs> I'll just, let me finish that thought. If God's called us to give anything, He's called us to give everything. If God's called us to give anything, He's actually called us to give everything. That's, that's what we see in Mary. That's what we see in the widow. That's what we see in the church of Acts. And so, you know, I mean, just some quick reasons to give before we skip past this and land. 
four reasons to give that we see in the New Testament church, in the New Covenant church, is Paul collected donations for the persecuted church. So that's settled. It's, it's a thing that gets done. Um, there, was, there was a collection made for uh, widows and orphans to care for the poor and needy. That's settled. That should be done. Um, Paul teaches that we should be careful not to muzzle certain elders, which talks about local ministers, <coughs> and support those that should um, to serve full time. That's 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 to 18. It says not to muzzle an ox. It says worthy of double honor. It talks about all this stuff. And it carries on to receiving offerings. Paul also talks about receiving offerings for ascension gifts. So the fivefold uh, gifts, sometimes they're locally based. Sometimes they travel, traveling ministers. So we're called to finance ministers. And then lastly, we ought to give to worship. Cheerfully, free givers were selling their homes out of worship so there'd be enough for others. And, and it was an act of worship, but ultimately to remain dependent on Him, to trust Him. And so there, there, there are reasons to give. And the, what we're giving to, it probably like, it requires more than just 10% of who we are. And so the greatest purpose of our generous giving and living is this. It's not to reap. It's not to um, put enough away to get something done. The greatest purpose, I'll propose this, of our generous giving and living is to trust the Lord. To trust the Lord. And so this is my conclusion. He's less concerned. Why don't we stand up? This is what I'm landing on. Are you ready for this? This is a bit of a challenge too. So I encourage you to open up your heart to hear this this morning. He's less concerned with the precise amount and more concerned with the condition of your heart. So let me put it this way. If you've been giving 10%, 15% to your local church for the last five, 10 years, check yourself because you may not, no longer be giving him your best. So this, this, my challenge to give is this. If you're not yet tithing in a local church, I don't say this as a law. I say this as an encouragement. If you're not yet tithing and you call, say, this house your own, or you serve Jesus as your Lord, then honor his pattern and worship him with a tithe. Let it be a sign and a demonstration of your trust to those that aren't yet tithing, okay? Everybody hear that. Secondly, if you already trust Him with 10%, your first fruit, prior to considering if you'll have enough for your own needs, if you're tithing, it's time to get more radically generous. Don't allow what started correctly become stale and unmoving and complacent and a bank transfer, an automatic bank transfer within your means, limited in what God has access, limiting what God has access to in your life. This isn't a law, so don't let it come down with condemnation, but also I encourage you, do not confuse condemnation with conviction. If God is convicting you this morning, because you've come to a place in your offering and your giving that has become conservative and measured like the man that sold his house but kept a portion for himself, then I encourage you, lean back into the Garden of Eden, a place where the Lord supplies exceedingly, abundantly more than you could ever ask, 
think, or even imagine. That's the world that God's calling us to come back to. A world where the Father provides. The one who feeds the birds of the air and dresses the flowers of the field desires and delights to look after you in an even greater way. I'm going to pray for us. Let that word absolutely crush you this morning. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, you are a good father. Wow. Oh, we repent, God. We, We repent for where we've turned our backs on you and for where we've begun to provide for ourselves. Man, Lord, we know that we can't provide for ourselves the way that you provide for us. And so, Lord, we want to return to you. We return to you in this very moment and we resubmit the entirety of our lives to you again. Unyielded, sorry, completely yielded and unreserved. Father, take our lives, take all that we have. We trust in you, our Lord. We pray that you be glorified through it. It's All it is, God, is a response to the great gift that you gave to us, the gift of salvation and the gift of eternal life. You truly are worthy of it all. Bless you, King Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Whoa. <laughs> messages, but that was just on another level. Could you give Leon a hand, please? Honestly, the season we're about to go into naturally, physically, supernaturally requires us walking in a different dimension. You were never called to live the day-to-day, just wake up, eat your breakfast, go to work, have lunch, have dinner, come home, wash up, repeat the cycle. You were made to live in a supernatural level. And that was phenomenal. Thank you so much. Let's not just let that word just die here today, but let that word seep into your hearts. This morning we were praying for the hearts that seeds were going to get thrown out through the message. And Father, I pray that this church is fertile ground. It's fertile ground. It'll receive a 30, 60 and 100 fold return as we're obedient to your word, Lord God. At your command, we let down the nets. At your command, we sow our seeds, Lord God. Father, we thank you. We say, have your way in and through our life, Lord God. Let it not be another message. May we listen to it over and over and over again. Lord God, may we build our life upon your word, precept upon precept, Lord God. Father, may we align our ways, our talking, our thinking, our living, are behaving according to the pattern uh, modelled in the Word, Lord God, so we can be light to the world around us. Just like CJ prophesied during our pre-service meeting, Lord God, Father, so that we can be a haven that people run into through the barren years, through the hard years, Lord God, a storehouse set up for the people, Lord God, everywhere and anywhere, Lord God. Father, we give You glory 
glory, we give you honor for what we have received this morning. We look up and we say, thank you, Lord God. We get to take baskets and baskets filled with overflowing with manna from heaven, Lord God, to our workplaces, to our home, uh, to the places we interact, to the places we have lunch, coffees, dinners, Lord God. Father, we say, have your way. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to the GGC Life podcast. We hope you feel encouraged. Be blessed.